If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the little book of Titus. I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I, for some reason I have great anxiety about this. I don't know why, I can't explain it. I know that, it, that anxious feelings about things are not from the Lord, and so I can recognize exactly what's going on there. And so uh, I ask that you bear with me as I navigate through this. For some reason, I just can't get my head on straight this week. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, that's probably not much different from any other week that I've talked with you, Pastor. And that's okay. The Lord forgive you. But I want to do something very different. Number one, if you go through your notes, what motivates you? What motivates you? What makes you go? coffee growing up as a kid in the in a suburb in bowling green kentucky i'll never forget a day i came home from school and my dad had got me a drum set first drum set first real drum set i mean it was real and what was amazing was i found out later it used to be one of those drum sets that people would rent out for special occasions you take it out you use it you bring it back for a fee it had been used in bars all over Bowling Green and all this stuff. And he got it for me for like a cool $200. And he told me, he said, you know, normally you have to ask your mom's permission first. But since it's your first day to get it, why don't you sit down and just play? Man, I didn't know what in the world was going on. I was just beating the snot out of everything. And I started to become a real big fan of a certain drummer. He actually just passed away. His name is Neil Peart. Have you heard of him before? He's from Canada. He's a drummer for Rush, yeah. And I tell you what, I could not play one, two, three, four to save my life. In fact, that almost cost me a band I was in. They were going to kick me out because I couldn't keep a straight beat. But I sat down and learned all his little tricks that I possibly could. I'd watch tape over and over, you know, VHS. That was fun back then, right? Rewind. Because you had to wait for the gears to go to... Okay, oh, that wasn't far enough, you know, that kind of thing. You're pausing to see what they're hitting at a certain time. And I studied him. And the amazing thing about his life was that if he wanted to set his mind to be determined to do something, he did it. He was one of those people that was so disciplined and would do whatever it took in order to get it right and do it better and try harder. In fact, one time as a kid... I think I was probably 12 years old. I wrote into a drum magazine writing him a letter. And about two months later, he sent me a postcard that he had signed. It was really cool. He'd answered all my stupid little questions. What'd you play here? How'd you hit this? What is that? You know, on a postcard. So, but it was one of those interesting things where his life was always characterized by doing better and trying harder because he was always in the pursuit of perfection. He was a big fan of literature. He loved Shakespeare. He loved Ayn Rand. He loved this whole idea that we are such complex and amazing machines that all we have to do is just retrain ourselves or reteach ourselves and somehow we're going to get better at what we do. Later on in his life, he ended up writing a couple of books. And of course, me being curious, I wanted to read through and see what he had to say. 
And he hated God. He hated God. He hated God because his 16-year-old daughter had died in a car crash. And about six months later, his wife had died of cancer. He just married again, probably about, I don't know, seven years ago. Had a little baby girl. And just at the beginning of this month, he died of brain cancer he'd been fighting for three years. I had to sit back and ask myself, you were so motivated by the pursuit of perfection. But when life ended, what did it gain you? Do you think when somebody has cancer that their body starts to break down, all that technique they were worked on for so long, it, it goes out the window. The things that we end up investing our lives in, when it comes to the moment when it really matters, you find out it didn't matter. And if I could have any hope for the body here at Grace Bible Church, would be that when we get to the end, Everything we did mattered. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of things that don't matter. And so I'm curious what motivates you. Because if it's the pursuit of perfection, you're not going to reach it. If it's your kids, guess what? They grow up one day and they leave. And then what are you left with? I'm not a prophet, but I'll go ahead and tell you, usually divorce. Because you were so wrapped up in your kids and you can't do that anymore because you were so kid first that you forgot how to be giving honor to your wife or giving honor to your husband. And they even call that empty nesters, don't they? What are we going to do now? Boy, that's a sad place to be. No, I get it. I'm not there yet. Who am I to talk? Yeah, grandkids, right? Man, let me say something real quick. You grandparents need to calm down. Okay? No, let me just say it. I don't know what you all been drinking or what. The junk you would have never let get by when they were your kids. When they're your kids' kids, you're like, eh, whatever. Grandparents become you only live once people, and that's just... that. That's terrible. It's a rental? Is that what it is? Let me tell you this. God is not pleased. And I say that half jokingly and I say that half serious. You should really think about that. No, I'm serious. Everybody stop and think for a second. This might I might not even preach what I was studied this week. Think for a second. If the care and stewardship of that child is in its parents, are you doing things in order to dismantle that parent's guidance? Well, it's not hurting anybody. I only mean it for good. But they're so cute. I got one word for you. Sucker. You're a sucker. Period. Don't usurp the parent's guidance. That's silly. Anyway, that's not where we're at. Motivation. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to do it because we're looking at a small book. I want to read through the entire book of Titus together. Only three chapters. But here's the reason why I want to do that. Sometimes we can get so focused on the analysis of a passage of Scripture that we neglect the synthesis 
of the book it's written in. And this is really important. This is actually a huge hermeneutics problem, okay? But I'm trying to stay away from some of that language and just give you the issue. We get so focused in on a text, and then we ask the question, well, how does that go with everything else that we're being told here? And we sit there, and we scratch our heads, and we go, I don't know, I can't, I can't put it all together. And so I'm going to read through, and I'm going to emphasize a few things that I want you to just take note of. Now, you don't have to mark in your Bible if you don't want to. If you want to just jot down some notes or whatever, if you do want to mark in your Bible, that's fine. God still loves you. It's not a big deal, okay? But we're going to start in Titus chapter 1. Titus is written to a man named Titus who was actually on an island in the Mediterranean, and he was a faithful steward of Paul's that Paul had sent in order to pastor this area of churches and serve as an elder that oversaw all these different churches on the island of Crete and to appoint elders in the time because they were dealing with a lot of false accusations, false teaching, divisive uh, conversation, and all kinds of a mess. And so Paul decided to entrust one of his disciples in order to go out and to help set some of these things straight. And I want you to see how it happens, and then we will focus in, we will analyze the text we're going to look at today. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time, manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not found, I'm sorry, fond of sword gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now watch this. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For... There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be found sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. 
But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works or good deeds. Forgive me. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to, to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis. 
scribe decided to spend the winter there. Diligently helped Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them, probably missionaries. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. And all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Does everybody notice that there is a constant call to sound doctrine and that there is a constant encouragement to good deeds? Does everybody see that? It's pretty evident, isn't it? In fact, what I did was I went through, and I actually noticed when I was reading through some places that I had missed. That's the beauty of Bible study. You go through five or six times, there's still stuff to find there. But things to do with teaching sound doctrine. Found it in verse 9 of chapter 1. Holding fast to the faithful word. Supposed to exhort in sound doctrine and a few people who contradict. Verse 13 of chapter 1. The testimony about Cretans being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You thought Cretans there. It said people from Madison, didn't you? You dirty dog. But notice, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Everybody see that type of thing? Notice that it says down in verse 2, but as for you, speak, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Notice that the ladies are to be teaching what is good in chapter 2, verse 3. Notice in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 7, that the men are to show themselves to be examples of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Notice over in verse 9, or sorry, verse 10, that bond slaves, employees are not to be pilfering, but instead they're to show good faith. Why? So that it will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There's a lot in here about the idea of be hearers, yes, but make sure that you're doers. Don't let hearing be in isolation. This is what we're calling the ancient principle, and this is the last Sunday we're going to deal with this ancient principle. But the call to the church is, Do not be hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Why? Because there is so much to gain out of what you have heard. Because if God's word is truth, it has power. And if it has power, it will change you. And if it changes you, it's changing you in one direction, and that is into the image of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm super excited about that. I may not look it, but I am. Because here's what it tells me. Doctrine is able to do what I cannot do for myself. My efforts to make myself a better person, to abstain from certain behavior, will not happen. Now, I don't want to point out any guilty parties, but I do need to know this. Who in this church, in their ever-loving mind, Put star crunches and cream pies in this cabinet back here. (laughs) Raise your hand, guilty person. Don't do that. I don't care how much Pastor Steve sweet talks you into putting goodies in the cabinet. I don't have the willpower to say no. And if I'm sitting here and getting a little bit stressed... Coffee in one hand, star crunch in the other? No. I was fearful putting on these pants today. 
So I beg you in the name of Christ our Lord, stop it. I cannot do those things. And so now I have an option. I can either get real down on myself, talk about what a pitiful and horrible person I am, that if I was really a true Christian who really loved the Lord, I could strive to do better and to really make those efforts in my life in order to conform better to the image of Christ. But what I'm doing is, is I'm taking God's hands off the work He wants to do and trying to show Him how it should be done. That's a dangerous place. In fact, I want you to notice this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 real quick. Notice that Paul talks about all these crazy things that are bad and these arguments that people would have and that elders need to live this dignified life and how all that's supposed to look. But notice the commandment he gives to Titus. Notice he doesn't say, get in there and whip everybody to shape. He doesn't say that. Pay attention to what he says. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, period. Let my word do my work. Everybody see that? That's important. Because the great lie that we buy into when we see obedience passages is we ask ourselves, well, I need to do things to be more obedient. That may be a fact that we need to be more obedient. But when we say, I need to, where have we placed the authority? How are we doing with authority in our lives? (laughs) (laughs) Honesty is appreciated. (laughs) Some of you still get on me about the whole speed limit thing. Now, pastor, sometimes you're along trucks and they go a little bit faster. I mean, you, you wouldn't want me to stay the speed limit then, would you? Doesn't matter what I want. What's Jesus say? See, that's great. That's always my scapegoat in that whole situation. What's the word say? You deal with the word. Don't deal with me. But there's always this pressure. And it's unnecessary. Let me please tell you now, as much as you are going to feel it, because that's just how we're geared, it is unnecessary. I had a friend of mine Text me, she said, what do you think about tithing? I said, I think it's Old Testament. Why? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, in New Testament, we see something that's referred to as grace giving. So the whole idea of tithing, it's not something that we're held to. That was more by the law. If you actually tithed everything that the Bible commanded in a tithe, you would actually end up parting with 23.5% of everything that you own. I think that's what it equaled up to be. She's like, wow, that's a lot. I said, yes. But in the New Testament, we're told to give cheerfully, not begrudgingly. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of where your heart is with the Lord. And I guarantee you, the more that you ponder upon the thankfulness that we should have for his sacrifice for us, you'd actually find that you want to give, not that you have to give. Everybody see why that's a different mentality to have? And she said, well, I'm we need to do this, this, and this. And I said, What are you trying to earn from God? What are you trying to earn from God by sacrificing? That's what she said. Shouldn't it feel like a sacrifice? Let me ask you a question. If you were to sacrifice something, would God accept it? Oh, we don't know the answer to this question, do we? Because we're not quick to answer it. Let me ask you a question. 
if we were to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, wouldn't it have to be acceptable to him? Otherwise, we shouldn't bring it. Yes? So who is the sacrifice? Oh, see, we know that answer. But if we're waffling on the fence about if we need to be bringing a sacrifice to him, then let me ask you the question, what are you trying to earn from God? Because I will tell you this, anything that you're trying to earn for him, from him has actually been fully reserved and perfectly available for you already because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. There's nothing left for you to give. Anything that you give is going to pale in comparison to Jesus our Lord. What, are we going to outgive Jesus? It almost sounds crazy when we say it out loud. Yet when I asked the question about personal sacrifice, you guys were having internal. I could tell it on your faces. Either that or you said on attack, I'm not for sure. But that got said, oh, I should be sacrificing. I should be giving. Yeah, maybe you should be giving, but giving is never motivated out of duty. If I don't give, then the Lord won't love me. What does that say about God's love? It's conditional. Stop for a second. Is that what we're told? No, we're told even while we were sinners. God demonstrates his love and that Christ died for us. See, this is the recorrection of doctrine that it needs to make on our minds so that when we have all this unnecessary guilt heaped upon us about what we should or we should not be doing for the Lord, that it becomes a thought that is taken captive unto Christ, and instead we're looking to Christ who is the victor of it all. That's the difference. That's what's known as positional truth. I am positionally righteous because of everything that Jesus gave to make me as such. And because I've heard the gospel and I've believed the gospel, I am now placed in a position of perfection in the eyes of God, the creator of all things. Now he wants to outwork the life of Christ in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a big difference between Jeremy works and Jesus works. Good Lord in heaven, there's a great difference. You can always tell when they're Jeremy works. Why? Because wrinkles start to form. Because sweat. Sweaty palms? Anybody like sweaty palms? No. Tense? All of a sudden, my shoulders are in my ears. Right? And you'll usually hear a good googly moogly or two coming out of me. Because those are the frustrations of the self-life. Trying to earn it. Trying to do better. Trying not to fail again. We probably need to recognize that failure is often God's tool to bring us to greater glimpses of the perfection of the already accomplishment of Jesus. Inadequacy makes us look for adequacy. The problem is, is we never look beyond this realm when it's all already been done and paid for for us. Church, I'm convinced. And I will go ahead and say this for myself first and foremost. I need a greater view of Jesus in my life. I need a greater glimpse of the cross. I need a better understanding of his power. I need a greater increasing of a knowledge of him that I may know him. 
and the power of his resurrection. I need that because this ain't working. Let's look at our passage. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now, real quick, notice it starts with four, and we already know what four, because he's giving certain directions. He gives it about older men investing in younger men, older women investing in younger women. Let me make a comment about that. At some point, I'm going to preach on it in the future, but let me say this now. Older ladies, older men, look for your younger men. Look for your younger ladies. Why? This is the reason why the church is dying is because young people are coming in and they're walking right out the door. Why? Because they were told about the body of Christ being a community of love amongst believers who are rallied around a sufficient Savior, but all they found were cliques and people talking over coffee in spread out parts of the room. No. Engage those people. Why? Because they don't know how to love their husbands and they don't know how to raise their children. And they don't know how to live dignified. And they need someone who is seasoned, who loves the Lord to tell them. They need that. Teaching never stops. Discipleship happens. Look for somebody. Grab them. Who's your guy? Who's your gal? Get with them. Love them. Teach them the word. Embed in them sound doctrine and pray that the Holy Spirit would ignite them for his glory. You may have Billy Graham sitting right in front of you. You don't even know it. My Lord, if we could send out a Billy Graham out of this church. Let me just say this real quick. This ain't part of my sermon. Let me say this real quick. There's a place in North Carolina called the Billy Graham Training Center. It's incredible. My wife and I had the opportunity to go years and years ago. I actually took a college group down there. And they had this museum set up of different things about Billy Graham's life because it's been so extraordinary. And there's one room that you walk into, and it is a picture probably about 30 feet behind Billy Graham and up. And he is there at this pulpit, and he's got his hand stretched out like this. And you see 189,000 people from Czechoslovakia gathered to hear him talk about Jesus Christ. That's not a joke. That's God doing God's stuff through someone who recognizes that they're nothing without him. There's no reason why we shouldn't hope for those types of things. Now, I don't know how all that came out of the word for, but it's important for us to know. Now, watch this. For the grace of God has what? Appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Let me ask you a question. Who is the grace of God that has appeared? Jesus Christ is the grace of God. I want you to understand that because here's what that tells you. You often hear me say, truth is a person. Get this, guys. Grace is a person. When there's something in you as a believer that motivates you to demonstrate grace to someone else who definitely doesn't deserve it, that is Jesus wanting to live his life through you. So notice, in this instance, the first advent we're talking about is an exercise demonstration ministry of God's grace, and it's found in the embodiment of flesh and blood like you and me, only being the very Son of God, okay? So notice, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. How many men? And what does all mean? All. 
I'm so tired of this Jesus didn't die for everybody stuff. Good grief, what's wrong with these freaking people? They make me so mad. That's another sermon. Move on. Now watch this, verse 12. Instructing us, now stop. Everybody see that word instructing? If you've got a marginal note, you'll notice over in your margin it says like disciplining or something like that. But this Greek word is actually used for the idea of child training. It's the idea of going over something over and over again until the child is issuing responses and behaviors and attitudes that are conforming with your desired end. And the way that that has happened is by constant teaching, their learning, reinforcement, over and over and over again. So the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ who has died for every single person and taken every single sin upon himself to set us free has appeared. And it has appeared with one end, instructing, training us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The idea of denying this is the fact that we are brought to the point where we refuse to give consent to sin in our lives. Let me ask you a question. When you're tempted with something, do you not sin because you know that sin is a bad thing? Or do you not sin because you find sin gross? Everybody see how the mindset might be different. Well, this is bad and good people don't do this. There's a word for that. Does anybody know what it's called? It's actually called legalism. Because whose opinion are you worried about? God's or other people? Everybody see that? All of a sudden, you've placed them as the authority of whether or not your Christian walk is jiving. And yes, that is a 70s term. I just pulled out of nowhere to use it. (laughs) Instead, if we would recognize the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that his appearing is meant to instruct us in a certain path, it is to recognize that sin is absolutely detestable in his sight. Why is that? Because it costs the grace of God his life. The human embodiment of grace died so that you could live. That's grace upon grace. And so our perspective towards sin is to be one where we find a repulsiveness, and we turn away, and instead it's got a better way for us to go, notice, and to live sensibly. Now, you know what's amazing about the word sensibly? We don't need to have it explained. Have you noticed that? Because it ain't no big thing to be walking through Walmart and you hear the carnival two aisles over. Like, what in the world is going on over there? And all of a sudden you find it. Kids have just lost it. And you go, that don't make no sense. That ain't right. We know when things are out of alignment. We know when things aren't equaling up. We don't need an explanation. It's interesting. We all have traces of the truth within ourselves that verify what it is to live sensibly. You know what does that? The conscience. God has given you and I a conscience that is actually tethered to him and his truth that throws up red flags or green flags to let us know what's going on. Notice also to live righteously. To live right. Rightly. Now how is this possible? The appearance of what? 
The grace of God. Who's asleep? Come on now. The appearance of the grace of God has taught us in this direction. He teaches us what is right. But not only that, godly. In the what age? Why does he make that distinction there? Why is it about living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, right now, where you are? Notice there's a call to do it. We can't deny the call to do it, but it's to be happening right now in your life. You say, well, good grief. There's that pressure. There's that anxiety. I'm not really motivated to live that way. And so I've got to ask myself how I can keep up appearances of religiosity so that other people will qualify me as being acceptable. And hopefully that will rub off on them so that they will be influenced in a better way. I tell you, if that's your motivation behind the way that you live your life, that is religiosity. It is not Christianity. Because it's all about conforming others to my mold, not being transformed by his word. That's a problem. So why in this present age? Here's the reason why. Verse 13, if you want to mark it, this is your motivator. What motivates you? You say, this doesn't motivate me. If it doesn't, it should. If it don't light a fire, the wood is wet, get new wood. There's a problem here. Sometimes we have to ask the Lord, make me excited about you. That's okay. He will. But we got to be in his word. When we forsake his word, the fire starts to wane. So here's what it says, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope. Real quick, that word, looking. Eagerly longing for. I gotta have it. I gotta have it. Ladies, sometimes you say that about shoes. Do you say that about Jesus? Can't say amen. You got to say ouch. Guys, sometimes you say that about cars. Can you say it about Christ? We all have wants. We're human. We all have things. I want that. Do you need that? No. But I want it. And that's what we do. I always love it when I ask my wife. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? She's like, do you need that? Guys, you know you married the Holy Spirit when you said, I do. You know. You know the Holy Spirit just became enhanced in your life. I don't need it, but I want it. Right? We all turn into three-year-olds at that moment. That's what I've been dealing with. Okay, so. Eagerly longing for the blessed hope. If the appearance of the grace of God in verse 11 was the first advent, this right here is your second advent. And what you actually find is the blessed hope and the appearing. Now, here's what's interesting. The Greek word here for and is the word chi. But what's next to chi there, and, is the word the. Everybody see that? What's amazing is, is that's a definite article in this sentence, and it is not in the manuscript. Now, why they didn't squiggle it in italics, I don't have a clue. But here's what this does for the word and. Looking for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope and his appearing are not two separate events. 
Because the definite article isn't there before appearing, it is lumping the idea of his appearing in with the concept of the blessed hope. And it's all the exact same thing. Anybody know what we call the blessed hope? His appearing? What do we call it? What do we call it? The rapture. Jim Brandt. Learn from Jim Brandt. You guys sound like somebody dropped a speaking spell down the stairs. You guys didn't know. Rapture. It's the rapture. You may not know this, guys, but this is what your motivation is. His appearing is imminent. What's that? That's what he's going to demonstrate. When he comes, I can't even put it in words. It's going to be so beyond what I can comprehend, I don't know. I want to say all my hair is going to fall out, but that's already starting. (laughs) There's going to come a day when Christ says, up, gone. You're going to hear a trumpet. And we are so worried about, well, I really want to see this happen. And, well, I really want to see that friend. And I kind of wish I'd have time to do this. Oh, well, I really love this in my life. And, I want, and there's all kinds of reasons why we are so strapped to this world that if Jesus took us away and we saw him face to face, our first emotion would be disappointment. Let that not be you. Well, that's not me. Let's not be self-righteous. Sometimes we are so grabbing a hold of this earth, that we would fight Jesus in the rapture. Some people say, well, you Christians are so, especially Bible churches, you Bible churches are so heavenly minded, you're not any earthly good. I would say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right next to you can earn your salvation. And why is that? Because without a glimpse of the heavenly, you have no motivation to do the earthly. What that tells me is people who hold that mindset are working unto themselves for their own approval and for their own rewards. They want to be the people who pray out so that everybody can see them and go, gosh, you're so holy, yay. It is not living in light of his appearing. His appearing. Isn't this exactly what we saw last week, what Jesus told us? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's heavenly mindset, is it not? It is. And what does he say after that? And all these things will be added unto you. What is that? Earthly mindset. The motivation in living the Christian life. The power comes from the indwelling Christ. Don't mistake that. That's the how. But the why... Is because the one who indwells us is also going to appear to us. We will be caught up to meet him in the clouds. Let me show you a couple of verses, a couple of passages real quick. I don't even really know where we're going. We're going for it though. Colossians. You're familiar with this one. Colossians 3. Turn over to the left real quick. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And here's what I've noticed. If you were to take starting Matthew chapter 1, read all the way to the end of the real... I'm so excited I'm speaking in tongues this morning. I don't even have that spiritual gift. So, if you were to start in Matthew, read all the way to the end of Revelation, you actually find out that there's a whole lot more rapture passages than what people give credit. And these people who frown upon the rapture and say that we're fools for believing it and that we're going to go through the tribulation. Guys, the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of God on unbelieving people. 
and it is used to get Israel's attention. We have no part in that. We are a redeemed people. Christ promised, I will come back and receive you unto myself and you will be with me always. So we have got to have our minds set on this already accomplished heavenly truth and not be so tied into the earthly. Now watch what happens here. Chapter three, verse one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, have you been raised up with Christ? You have, that's positional truth. Keep seeking the things above. Notice where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Heavenly truth, yes? It is. Set your mind on the things above, not, not. If you ever pulled out a triple underline in your Bible, get it on not. Not on the things that are on earth. Why? For you have died. Do you realize one of the greatest things we ever received in Jesus Christ is the fact that he killed us? You've never thought about that, have you? He came and he took this old sinful person that I used to be and he slain me and then he raised me. That's amazing. I was a scoundrel. Notice I said was. I was a fool. In fact, I I talk about some things with my wife and she said, yeah, if I would have known you in high school, we probably wouldn't have talked. Now, that doesn't make her a prude. She was a very nice, nice person. I was a dangerous person. I was bad news. And all I loved was me. And everybody else could rot in hell for all I cared because that was my attitude towards the world. Terrible. So the greatest thing that Jesus does when he comes into my life is he's got to do his surgical work and he kills me first. Why? Because that person ain't going to do. That's the reason why. The old pre-Christ us is going to do nothing. That's why we're told the flesh profits nothing. The flesh never gets better. Things in your own power ain't going to work. Do it for me. There it is. Next time you think the flesh, think that. It'll immediately drive you away. Look what it says. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in, in. I love the location in the word in, in God. If I said, where are you at right now? You would make the mistake of telling me Grace Bible Church. Why? Because number one, the church is not a building. It's a people. So you're assembled with Grace Bible Church. And number two, as far as God is concerned, you're actually in him now. That's an already truth that is true of you. And me, if you can believe it. Notice, in God, verse 4, here it is. When Christ, now don't miss this part. In fact, these four words are your devotional for the rest of this week. Only four words. When Christ, who is our life. Why? Because he killed you. He killed you and he raised you to a newness of life. And that newness of life is his life, not your old life redone. Because the obedience of the Christian life is not redirecting the flesh. It is slaying the flesh and being alive in the spirit. That's why. So he's in there doing his surgical work and he raises us and he is your life. You say, I can't even comprehend what in the world that means. Please meditate and pray over it and ask for the spirit to show you. Because when you grasp the idea, 
idea that the way anything is ever going to get accomplished in your life for the glory of God is the fact that Jesus needs to be living his life and you just need to be resting in everything that he's already provided, you will experience liberty like you've never known before. Why? Because all this legalism crap that we throw around all the time doesn't matter anymore. Dig a hole, bury it, and live as living people. Why? Because our Savior's alive. That's why. When Christ, who is our life, look what it says, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Everybody know what that event's called? The rapture. There it is. The rapture. The rapture is the motivation for them to live the Christian life. Why would they need to be told, set your mind on the things above? Why would they need to be told that their life is hidden with Christ in God? Why would they need to be told that Christ is your life? Because this world is awful. And we want to look at everything we can be and we can accomplish because we have these really great aspiring plans for ourselves and we're going to end up like the greatest drummer in the world who had ever lived dying with nothing. Nothing. Why? Because all the motivation was here and none of it was here. That's how you get nothing out of life. Now turn back to Titus. Verse 13, we're looking for the blessed hope, the second advent, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Who gave himself for us, right? There's the cross. He gave himself for us to redeem us. Now, redeem is a money term, yes? What was the payment? Blood. Remember that. Everything that we are before God is paved on a pathway with the perfect blood of Christ who delivers us into full acceptance into his presence. There is no veil anymore. Remember when Christ gave up his spirit, breathed his last, the veil tore? What's that say? Access to God is open. Come on in. And say, praise God. I don't have to go through this person and this person, talk to this person, sacrifice this thing, do this, go here, offer this sacrifice, and then maybe I can hang out with God a little bit. God says, no, door's wide open. Jesus opened it. In fact, doesn't he, when he appears to John at the very beginning, Revelation 1, I have the keys of death and Hades in my hands. I was dead, but now I am alive. His resurrection purchased full access of all existence. Now that one will hurt my noggin. But look what it says. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Why? Because the blood covers every debt we have incurred. It covers it, washes it, full and free, gone, never to be remembered again, drowned in a sea of forgetfulness. We know the verses, right? Cast as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe that? If that's the case, why do past sins plague us? There's an answer. It's because Satan carries a shovel. That's the reason why. Because he wants to dig it up and then throw it in our faces. And that's when we grab that thing and say, no, Jesus died for that. And he buried it. 
and I have been resurrected to a new life. He didn't sit here and play around with some duct tape and super glue on the old life. He knew it was done. So he buried it. And he's raised something new. Look what it says here. Redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself. That's what the Christian life is. This Greek word, katharizo, it's the idea of a catharsis. It's a cleansing out. He is working on scrubbing us down. Why? Look what it says. To purify us for who? Himself. Now notice this. He does the saving work. He does the surgical work. He does the resurrecting work. And not only that, he does the purifying, cleansing work. It sounds to me like anything in my Christian life is all of him and nothing of me. In fact, let me share with you a phrase from Galatians 2.20 to understand that should be our mantra from here until the rapture. Not I, but Christ. That's the difference. Not I, but Christ. To purify for himself. Now let me ask you, what brand of soap do you think that Jesus uses to cleanse the Christian? I mean, you're already spotless in his sight, positionally speaking. But we know that we're failing and tripping and messing up and slobbering our hair and whatever else as far as the Christian life is concerned. What brand of soap do you think that Jesus uses? The Word of God. And no, if you said King James, stop it. He uses the Word of God. And he begins to clean. Aren't we told, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Washing her with the water of the Word so that he may present her, the church, to himself spotless and without blemish. You know what that's talking about? Time of the rapture. It's talking about God's purifying work of his bride through Bible doctrine in order to cleanse the old junk out of us, the godlessness, the worldliness out of us, his work through doctrine doing the cleaning work. He is the scrubber. Not only is he the Savior and the Resurrector, anybody ever thought about calling Jesus? Praise you, Jesus, for being the scrubber in my life. Scrub me down. Help. I need it. Praise God for his grace. Look what it says. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We are his. Now, ladies, no surprise, I'm going to run a little long today. Ladies. Remember that first time you got that diamond on your hand? Remember that? I don't say anything. But remember, you kind of move your hand a little bit so you can see it go, twinkle, twinkle, right? You want to check it out? And that's what happens, right? Look what happened. <laughs> right? Why you can't just say, I'm engaged, I don't know. That's what guys do. I guess we're doing this, you know? But you ladies have this full presentation. Right? You want to get the full expanse of the room? You make sure that you got like a clapper hooked up so extra lights come on or something? 
My wife has never had a problem with the law, but the only time she ever got pulled over by a cop was right after we got engaged so that she could go tell her friends about it. Amazing. Then her dad's a judge, so the cop's like, whatever. So, (laughs) you got to announce it. Why? Because now there's a possession that is taking place. He is mine. I have trouble with that. But the great thing is, is that he rejoices in saying that I am his. God wants to be with me. And he loves me enough not to just save me. He doesn't stop there. He purifies me. I am his own possession. You are his possession. Nothing makes the heart of God more joyous than the fact that you are his treasure. I can't understand that. Good grief. You wouldn't get anything for this at a pawn shop, man. And yet he values it highly. In fact, let me do this. It's coming to mind. I'm not going to be dumb. Let's go to Ephesians 1. Look at it real quick. While you guys are turning, I'm going to find what I'm looking for. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him... And there's that location idea again. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God, you heard the gospel. And look what it says, the gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you hear and you believe, you are now saved. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed, never to lose it. Now watch verse 14 here because look what happens. It says here, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption. Now pause. Because this isn't redemption as in Christ paid his blood in order to redeem you out of sin. This is talking about a future redemption to take place of those who are already saved unto God. Now watch this. A view to the redemption of God's own possession. Future tense. To the praise of His glory. It's talking about the same thing. Right now on earth, He is actively using His Word, Bible doctrine, Bible studies, whatever you want to say, in order to cleanse His church, to bring them to the most pristine, presentable opportunity when we are caught up in the air and we appear before the Lord and He says, I am so thankful that my possession." is home. Guys, that's the heart of God out of Scripture. Thinking much of us. And the reason why He thinks much of us, because Christ is all in us. He's everything. When we find ourselves in hardships and trials and periods of depression and discontent, whatever it may be, struggles where we just want to pick up the TV and throw it out the front window into the road, whatever it might be, stop and recognize that you are a valued possession that God is actively working with because Christ desires to live his life in you. And real quick, the end of our passage here says zealous for good deeds. 
He's purifying us so that we are demonstrators of the ancient principle. Not because we learned something better, tried harder. Not because we got, went to school and ran up all this student loan debt and now we're ready to go because we got 10 degrees behind our names. But simply because that is the outworking of Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine gives way to works. Not works that we purpose to do, works that He purposed to do. In fact, He says of the church, we are His workmanship in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A lot of times we don't. But they're already prepared for us. Everything that God will ever call us to everything that he will ever confront us with is an already situation. The power needed to get through the trial, already done. The healing that needs to take place in the relationship, already bought. The correction that needs to go on in my personal heart and mind, already a done deal. Why is it? Because Christ has already died. And everything is already, already in Him. Does that make sense? He is the pinnacle of all of it. And for Him to sit there and take the time to say, you know what, I'm cleaning you unto a purpose. Because I'm going to come again. And when I do, God is going to parade heaven like this. And show off his prized possession. Now that's not meant to inflate your self-esteem. It is meant to exemplify his grace. That's huge. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for outpouring upon outpouring of grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, power, but also securing in your Son, the opportunity to be cleansed and to be valued by the Creator of all things. I'm sure at one moment we can't even fathom that truth, but I pray, Lord, how we got to be so precious in your sight is only by Jesus. Only by Jesus alone. You loved us enough to send Him. How amazing it is that you prize us because we're in Him. It's all Him. All glory due to Him. All credit to Him. Anything that would come across our lips needs to be spoken in praise to Him. How fantastic He is. God, maybe this morning we're hard-hearted. We don't get it. Father, may Your Spirit melt us to embrace the greatness of the grace of the person, Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.